0: All my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been good. If we could sum up a song here this morning that would just fit what we're talking about, it would be that line right there. When we truly sit back and realize that God has been faithful in our life and will continue to be faithful in our life, it is truly at the essence of where we find joy, where we find peace. And this morning, as we dive into uh, this chapter 6 of Hebrews, we're going to be talking about promises Promises. The title I said before is Anchored in the Promise. And when I think about promises, my mind instantly goes to um, little kids. I don't know if you guys, me being around kids five days a week uh, and then having two little ones at home, uh, if you have ever made a promise to a small child, I promise you that they will never forget that promise. Ever. Ever. With my own sons, I'll tell them one thing and then you, you, you get into this situation where they're acting up or they're not listening or things are they're, they're saying all sorts of stuff and you, in that moment you say, hey, hey, if you, just, if, you just, if you just do this for a second, I promise, I promise we'll play this game later. You can go through all sorts of events throughout the entire night, all sorts of whatever it may be, and then when it's time to put them down in bed... You look over to them when you're trying to put them to sleep, and they said, hey, Dad, remember you said you'd promise we'd play that game? How many people have ever been in that situation before? They never forget promises, ever. I have kids in PE class. They don't get to be it that day. Well, then they have to wait a whole other week until PE comes. And I tell them, I said, hey, listen, I promise next week you'll be it. A whole week goes by, and we play the same game, and they come back, and they say, hey, Mr. Rooster, remember you promised me I'd be it? you kidding me. You can't even remember what you had for breakfast that morning or to bring your homework or your backpack or your water bottle, but you remember that I promised you that you could be it. I tell you this this morning because I think in that, which we, we, Christ tells us to have this childlike faith. I look at this, this keeping and the remembering of promises, and I think how awesome it would be if we... As Christians, as we as believers, could remember promises, the remember the promises of God like a small child can remember the promises of an adult. Because guess what? Whether it's whatever is going on that night, whatever went on that week, whatever happened, I guarantee you, in all the tragedies and all the things that maybe happened on in that small child's life in a week's worth of time or in a small amount of time. Everything that bad happens, they probably think back to, okay, well, dad promised me we're gonna play this game. I just gotta get through this and we can go play that game. Or, oh, I gotta kind of just get through these couple days here, and then Josh, Josh promised me I could be it and pe next. In all of the tragedies and all of the suffering and all the things that they may be going through, what drives them forward is that promise that was given to them. The same applies to us in our Christian walk when we are. Hear the promises of God. We hear the promises of God, and no matter what tragedy, no matter what struggle, no matter what, whatever may come our way, when we hold forth, we hold tight to that promise of what is to come, it allows us to get through those trials, that suffering. It allows us to get straight through there. And this morning what we're talking about is the difference between what Eric preached on last week about those who were apostate, those who fell away from the faith and those who are true believers. And the difference between both of them is the apostate does not hold true to the does not hold tight to the promises given to him by God and the true believer does. The true believer trusts God in every situation, any tragedy or struggle or trial that comes in their life. They trust God. The apostate does not. They abandon the faith because in any type of trial that comes their way or suffering that comes their way, they have never truly anchored their soul to the promises of God. So this morning, as we dive into this, we must understand that anchoring our souls to the promises of God are truly what is the difference from falling away or drifting away than staying strong in the faith. It's not our ability to hold tight. It's not our ability to push through. But it is our anchor of the rock of which we sang this morning that we anchor our soul to that keeps us in the faith. And when we do that, as we sang this morning, He will hold us fast. If you have your Bibles with me this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 20. It says this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater, one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain when Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Definitely, Father, Lord, we just come to you right now. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage that we get in Hebrews. Lord, we thank you for the passage that we heard last week from Eric, Lord, of the warning. And Lord, we thank you for this week, Father, for the promise, for the better news, the good news, Father God, of those who anchor themselves to Christ. God, I pray this morning that when we leave here, Father, we understand that you are a trustworthy God. Lord, that you are a God that is worthy to put our lives in your hands, Father God, and that you have the best for us. Lord, let us be more trusting of you this morning. God, I pray right now, Lord, that you would empty me of myself. Fill me with your spirit, Father God, to deliver this message, not from myself, but from you. Let us all have open ears and open hearts to receive here. And we ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, as we, before we dive into this, I want to kind of go back a little bit and pick up where Eric left off last week. Because it's important that we understand that as we transition into this better news It's important to look back at the warning that Eric so beautifully did a great job last week of describing, and and, and I love the analogy of a warning that we see here in chapter 6. But as we read about this, I truly think that the author of Hebrews has a pastor's heart. If you think about this, he delivers a warning, but then he follows up that warning with a good dose of the good news of grace and mercy. And that's what our jobs as pastors are. We're not supposed to shy away from the bad news. But we also don't come in here every Sunday preaching hellfire and brimstone. We back that up with the grace and the mercy of God. We have to have a balance of both. There's the warning and then there's the promise. And that's what I feel like the author is doing here in the book of Hebrews. He's been given the warning back in chapter 5, verse 11, but now we see encouragement as we read here in verses 9 and 10. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. There's better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. And Eric explained last week how there are people in here that are growing crop, right? We have a fruit that is coming, even if it's a little sprout. We see the good works of people coming in. God sees those good works, and he is continuing to push forward in those. He is not throwing everybody aside, but he sees your good works. And then what he does, the author does here, is he says there's better news for those people, and then he gives them a charge in verses 11 to 12 by saying, and we desire, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness earnestness to the, have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises so what we see here is we know the author of hebrews loves to point back to the old testament right he loves pointing back no book in the bible in the new testament points back to the old testament more than what the book of hebrews does So we see that he does that, and right here we are seeing him encourage his audience to push forward in the earnestness of the full assurance of their faith that they have by using an example. And he says, look back to those who through the faith and patience inherited these promises of God. So that transitions us into verse 13. The person that he points back to here is the person of Abraham. And if you've been with us in Sunday school over the last several months, we went through extensively the story of Abraham. From the very beginnings all the way until his death, we went through this. What I love about Answers in Genesis, I feel like I bring that up every Sunday, but it's a great curriculum that we dive into the story of Abraham. And we have to understand that Abraham was a flawed man just like you and I. But what greater example could the author have used than the story of Abraham? So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn back. We're going way back. Turn back into Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to see kind of the, uh, I guess you would say, the highlight, of the climax here of Abraham's story. Okay. We, when we think about Abraham, we think about all these different things. But in my opinion, one thing that we always point back to is when Abraham was told to sacrifice his son. But before we get to that, we have to understand what was the promise that God had given to Abraham. All right, he promised him that he was going to be giving him a descendants that would fill the earth. He descendants that would fill the earth. And we have to understand that Abraham was no spring chicken at this time. He was an old man, his wife Sarah, old lady. Okay? Birth is not something that they are thinking about at this time. And Abraham was worried about this. He thought that he was going to have to give his inheritance to what they one of his servants. Because he never had anyone to pass it down. And God promised him that he would give him descendants. And what happened is, God promised him this, and then he instantly gave him a son, right? No. What happened was, God had Abraham and Sarah wait for 25 years years. 25 years. How many of us would accept a promise that wouldn't be fulfilled for 25 years? Yeah, we'd be getting pretty impatient, right? But after 25 years, God blesses them with a son. At this time, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. With each passing year, you had to think, they had to think, all right, well, is God really going to do this? Is he really going to do this? We even see Abraham try to take matters into his own hands, right? Sarah and Abraham take matters in their own hands. They, they have a son with Hagar, Ishmael. Okay, we see this happen. But after 25 years, Abraham and Sarah patiently waited, and God delivered his promise. He gave them a son, Isaac. And I always find it funny. Do you know what the Hebrew meaning of Isaac is? God laughed. So it's kind of funny, right? After a hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman are having a son, that's that's how God works, right? He doesn't necessarily work in logic that we would think or things that we would think would happen in the way that we would think that they should, but God operates outside of human logic. And he bursts them with the Son. But if you see here back in Genesis chapter 2, what does God ask of Abraham to do with Isaac? He asked him to sacrifice him, right? Sacrifice him. And how did Abraham respond to God asking him after waiting for 25 years for this promise to come? How does does Abraham respond to God saying, all right, I've given you your promise. Now sacrifice him. Abraham builds an altar. He bounds Isaac to it. And he's prepared to sacrifice his one and only son. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a second here. What is going through your mind? The anguish that he must have felt in going through this process is something that had to be so weighty. I can't imagine having to put one of my sons on an altar and sacrifice them. And not only did he have the love of his son, But he had waited for 25 years to have a son to carry forth his inheritance. So the promise that God had given him that he had so patiently waited for, God said, okay, give it up. Man, I can't imagine what he felt and the doubt that would have crept into his mind during this time. God, you promised me a son Then you came through with that promise after I waited a good amount of time. And now you're asking me to sacrifice him? How am I supposed to carry, how are you supposed to carry forth your promise in that? But Abraham patiently waited. Yeah, he had some screw-ups, but he ultimately waited and he trusted God through this entire process. He trusted God through this entire process. And we have to understand here that when the author of Hebrews points back to Abraham, he's making sure that he's making a point that trusting God is what separates the true believer and the nominal Christian. The true believer that has truly put their faith in God and the person that just looks like a Christian. That's the difference. Trusting in God because it is the driving force which enables us to persevere in the faith. All the doubts that had crept into Abraham's mind during this entire process could have easily steered him away from God. He could have kept his son and he could have had descendants. But he ultimately trusted God and persevered through the hardest moment in his life. Doubt. Doubt can be a horrible, horrible thing that creeps into our mind. Do you guys ever have doubts? Man, I know I sure do. I sure have doubts. Do you ever have doubts that you're really saved? Do you ever have doubts that God is actually good? Do you have doubts that he even loves you? Do you doubt that there's even life after death? Does having doubt mean that we're not believers? Are these questions that have gone through you guys' mind before? If they have, if you've ever had doubts like those or ever asked those questions before, raise your hand. Hi. Look around, church. Look around, church. You're not alone in your doubts. You're not alone in your doubts. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when your faith is small, the Lord is ready to help you. How awesome is that? Just because you have doubts does not mean that you lack faith. But what it means is that your faith could be built up that you could grow in your faith, which is ultimately what we're doing in our life, correct? We're ultimately growing in our trust for God, growing in our relationship with him. That's what sanctification is all about. We continue to trust him more and more and more in our lives as we go through times of suffering, as we go through times of trials. That's why we can sit here and sing today, all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been good, because we look back on the promises that he gave us, and we look back on the times in our life that were hard, and we realize that in those moments, God was there. And he was active, and he was faithful. Doubt can sometimes lead us to a T in the road, though. When we have doubt, we can get to this T in the road, and we can either trust God or not trust God when we have those doubts. And just like Abraham, he had a choice to make, He had a choice to make, and honestly, in his flesh and in his logic, this made no sense. But trusting God to be the provider of all things ultimately led him to doing what God had asked, and it was in this trusting of God that God deemed Abraham righteous, It was in his trust for God that he deemed him righteous. The same way that we are deemed righteous by trusting and putting our faith in God. Choosing the other road, choosing the other direction is where we find that our faith is non-existent. It is where we find ourselves where Eric talked last week on the warning of those who are apostates. They do not trust in God, therefore they turn and they doubt him. They don't trust him. They don't believe him, and that's when the process of deconstruction happens. And they start unraveling their entire faith because they don't trust God, and ultimately, that's where they came. They may have had the outward look of a Christian, they may have attended church, but in the midst of their suffering and their pain, when they came to that crossroad, they ultimately did not have faith and trust in God. That's the difference. That is the difference. And as we look at this, this, we're talking about here, there's the waiting. That's the first point, the waiting that we talked about. Don't think I'm just now starting my first point. That was all of the first point. We're good. We're in good shape. The waiting. There's a waiting in the midst of God. And when you wait, that's ultimately trusting. Trust him in the waiting. Some of us in here are waiting for different things. Some of us are waiting in here for a child. Some of us are waiting in here for a spouse. Some of us are waiting in here for grandchildren. Some are waiting for a job. Some are waiting for their marriage to get better. Some are waiting for this, waiting for that. Whatever it may be, listen, there is growth in the waiting. There is promise in the waiting. And it's persevering in that waiting that comes through trusting God. Abraham waited 25 years. Are you willing to wait that long by trusting God with the process? He is giving you the promise that he will work all things together for the good for those who are in Christ Jesus. So trust me, the good is coming. Whether you see it or not, trust in him in the waiting. And what helps in the waiting is the next point I want to bring out is the knowing Knowing God's character. So as we persevere in the faith, trusting God must overcome doubting God. Our trust for God must overcome doubting God. This is a fundamental difference between the believer and the falling away from faith. I can't emphasize that enough. But when it comes to trusting people in our lives, who are those that we trust the most? Those that we know the best, right? If we have no Knowledge Of who random, this random Joe Schmo is It's going to be hard for us to trust Especially in this world today Where we have seen so many people Be untrustworthy But when we know somebody Deeply That's when trust is fully built So the same applies to our relationship with God The more we understand and know who God is And know his character The easier it is for us to trust in him do you ever notice how little kids are very hesitant to go to other people than their parents? Why is that? Well, because their parents are with them all the time. They know that mom and dad love them. They know that mom and dad are going to trust them. And as they start to get older and build those relationships with other people, then they start to become more familiar. They begin to trust them more. But it is ultimately on a larger scale exactly how we interact as human beings. The more we know someone, the more we trust them. So how was Abraham able to trust God with the life of his son Isaac and the promise that he had been given because he knew who God was. He knew the character of God. I love this. If we read, read let's read verse 17 to 19 and talk about this because stay in Genesis 22 because we're going to get back to that. But as we go back into verse 17 and 19 in Hebrews Verse 17, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So what God is saying here is that he he is trustworthy and he is trustworthy and he gives us several different reasons why he is trustworthy. Okay. First off in verse 16, verse 16, it says, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is a final confirmation for people swear by something greater than themselves. Who is greater than God? He is the ultimate authority in the entire universe. And we see in Genesis 22 verse 15, after Abraham was stopped from sacrificing Isaac, what does the Lord, angel of the Lord say? He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. So what's interesting is when an individual back then would testify, and it's the same thing for us today, they would have to make an oath. If you've ever seen, been in a courtroom, I've never been in a courtroom for a court hearing, but I've watched enough TV to understand how this works. All right. When they are in a courtroom and they have to testify, they place their hand on a what? Bible. At least they used to. I think now they're getting really weird with what they place their hand on. Okay. But they place their hand on a Bible, and they say, Do you... S- Do you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth? So help me God. Yes. They're swearing to God that they will tell the truth because he is the ultimate authority. That's what they're representing there when they place their hand on the Bible. But what God does here is he is the highest authority in all of the universe. So he can only swear upon himself. And that's what he does. He swears an oath to fulfill this promise. Now. Here's the the really neat thing about God. Does God have to swear an oath? Absolutely not. He's God. So why does he swear that oath? He does this because he wants us to trust him. So he takes the extra step, goes the extra mile to swear upon himself that this promise that he has given Abraham is going to come to pass. And why, and another thing that we understand that he's trustworthy is just like I said, he desires to convince us that he is trustworthy. God's desire was for us, as he says right there, the heirs of his promise, which is what we are, to be completely convinced that his promise was trustworthy. Michael Kruger describes it this way. He says, God's oath is an act of grace, not because his word is in doubt, but because we are in doubt. So he knows us. He knows that we're going to doubt. So what's he do? He goes the extra mile and says, I'll even take an oath, as you guys do, to promise you that this is going to come to pass. And as we continue to trust God more, his desire for us is to trust him. In his love for us, he does all he can to show us that he is worthy of our trust. Goes further on in verse 18 at the beginning there. He says that God is unable to lie. we know that God is completely holy and righteous, as it says in Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So if he is righteous and sinless, he cannot lie. This small phrase here allows us to never doubt when God gives us his promises because he is not a promise breaker. He fulfills the promises that he has been given. He does not say one thing and do another thing, but follows through on those promises. And do we know, when we go back and look at the reason why Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac at the altar, it gives us that reason in Hebrews 11, 17-19. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise that was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said though Isaac shall your offspring be named so he's giving him up though offspring the the one that was going to be the start of his descendants going forward why did Isaac or why did Abraham do it right here it says because he considered that God was able to even rise him from the dead he trusted God so much And knew his character so much that he knew that since he had promised him Isaac, that he was going to fulfill that promise. Even if he killed his only son, God would raise him from the dead just so his promise would be fulfilled. That is knowing God to the max. That is trusting God to the max. That God, you've asked me to do this. And even though you've asked me to do this, I believe that you will fulfill this promise, even if it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But he was so sure of God's character that he believed as long as he was obedient, God would fulfill that promise. And then at the end of 18, he gives us another reason why he's trustworthy. He gives us something to hold fast to. He tells us right there at the end of 18, he says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that was set before us. Not only does God stay true and faithful to his promises, but he also gives his promises as this sort of seal, this seal that's something that we could hold fast to in the midst of our doubt, that this hope that is set before us is truly what we hold tight to in this life. And what is this hope that is set before us? Well, this hope that is set before us is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that he will come back for his people, that he has been preparing a place for you in heaven. That promise is what we hold on to. So in this hope that is set before us, just like a child in the beginning analogy, we don't have to look at our present struggle and be in doubt the rest of our lives, but what we can do is we can look forward to the promise that was given to us so that we may persevere in the faith. The promise of the hope set before us is what we hold fast to in the midst of our sufferings and our trials. Then lastly, We have to anchor ourselves. So we have the beginning of the waiting for the promise. And in the waiting, we learn to know. And then after we know, we anchor. You I don't know if you guys remember at the beginning of our journey in Hebrews, I preached a sermon where I talked about drifting. I talked about drifting. And in that sermon, I used the analogy of being anchored so that even when we drift, we're never let go of. And the author of Hebrews, once again, using this boat analogy with this word anchor here by saying we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have been given an anchor for our soul that is steadfast and sure, which is important because the waves and the storms of this life will throw us here and there and toss us here and fro, and we will be in doubt. But this anchor holds us tight. It's how we overcome this doubt because we are anchored down and we are anchored to that rock on which we stand, which we talked about this morning. That anchor is Jesus. Kevin preached a couple of weeks ago about how Christ was fulfilling. He was filling the position of the high priest. And the author continues here that continues that here in this passage. And he says that he entered into the inner place behind the curtain A place that only the priest was allowed to enter into. But notice the difference between the priest and Christ. The priest would enter into the Holy of Holies as a representative on their part. But it says that Christ here went into the inner place, the Holy of Holies, as a forerunner. Forerunner. Now, if you're like me, I didn't know what this meant. This forerunner. Okay, what does it mean to be a forerunner? So I looked it up, and Alistair Begg, I know, roll your eyes, Nate. Okay, Alistair Begg puts it perfectly, puts it perfectly. He describes the difference of the priest and Jesus by saying that Jesus does not go as a mere representative for us in the Holy of Holies, but what he does is he goes as a forerunner, meaning a person who goes or is sent in advance to announce the coming of someone or something that follows. So Jesus is not only going in our place as a representative, but he's also paving the way for us to enter into the Holy of Holies ourselves. What a beautiful picture that is as Jesus as our forerunner. He not only gets to enter into the Holy of Holies as us, but then what he does is he paves the road for us, announcing they're coming. And we see this described perfectly in Matthew 27. When Jesus dies on the cross, what was tor- torn in two? The curtain. Which signified that God's presence was now available to all of his people. Because of who Christ was and what he did. So we have to understand that Christ is the central key to the promises of God. God. That we anchor our soul in Christ because that is truly where the promises of God are made. In 2 Corinthians 1.20 it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The coming of the Messiah, the life free from sin that he lived, the death that he died, and the resurrection he had are the climax of God's ultimate promise to redeem his people. The hope that is set before us in Christ that can never be taken away. So when the storms come, instead of looking around or inward, we need to look forward to the day when we will be with Christ For it is then that God's promise is complete. So I go back to my first analogy. Be like a child when it comes to the promises of God. A child never forgets the promise that you have given them. Just as we should never forget the promise that God, our Father, has given us. And it is through those promises that we give those, chi- those children that they can put their clothes on, that they can brush their teeth, that they can do all the things that they just absolutely hate, that they feel like is suffering in this world. It gets them through because they know that in the end they will receive the promise that was given to them by their parent. It's the same thing for us, brothers and sisters. That when we hold true to the promises that God has given and we remember them, we can suffer in this life greatly. We can persevere in those trials greatly because we look forward to the promises that are to come that have been given to us in God through Christ. We must not forget. We must not forget the promises of God. And we do that in remembering those promises, we wait for those promises, we get to know God in his character and we anchor ourselves to the rock that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So until then, I charge you with what the author of Hebrews encourages with in chapter 10. We have been given the promises of God. He is trustworthy. He is worthy of our trust. We place our trust in Him, and here's the charge that I give you until that promise is fulfilled in the returning of His Son. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have a need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who have shrunk back. We are not those who have shrunk back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. What a charge given to us by the author of Hebrews. Continue to persevere in the faith, looking ahead to the promise that is to come in the returning of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that day of returning, we will be united with them in heaven And when we are united with him in heaven, there is a place with no more tears, no more suffering, no more punishment, none of that. But we truly get to bask in the promise that was given to us when we came into the faith of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, push on and keep your eyes forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you right now, God. We thank you, Father, for this this promise, this message that you give us, Father, God on your promises. God, I thank you, Lord, Lord, that we have the promise that we have to hold on to. Lord, that you give us a rock to anchor our souls to. Father, I thank you, God, Lord, that you give us the ability through trusting you, Father, God, to persevere in the faith. And Father, for those of us in here today that have doubts, that are doubting, Lord, I pray, God, that you would not uh, allow them to be shook. But, Father God, allow them to, in their doubts, turn to you. Lord, not to turn inward, not to turn to what the world has to offer, but, Father God, to truly focus their attention on you and the promises that you have given us. For, God, one day, Lord, that living hope that we rest before us, Father, today, one, one day that hope will come to be. Lord, that you will come and bring us home. Father God, let that be the driving force of our every day in our lives. Through the suffering, through the trials, through whatever may come our way, we trust in you. God, we ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.